Today's reading is from Luke 6, um, verses 46 to 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it has been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built the house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, It's good to to see you. Um, I realize that not everybody here um, has uh, emotional attachment and you're like, I don't know who this person is. And in some ways, uh, I really rejoice in that. Um, (laughs) uh, Not that you, you know, that I don't know you, but uh, the fact that um, when we planted Village, uh, however many years ago, um, you know, we really did have a vision to see uh, the Lord build uh, a church community and uh, to, to watch that grow into now two congregations. Uh, we have a family um, that are joining us on Friday um, and uh, to do a two-year church planting residency with us to hopefully plant a third congregation, uh, hopefully in West Belfast. And so just to see how the Lord is, has worked and grown um, village has just been uh, beyond our kind of wildest imaginations. Whenever there was the six of us in our living room those many years ago, um, I don't think we imagined what the Lord would do. Um, and so uh, I'm very grateful for that and grateful that, um, uh, that I don't know some of you because you've come um, after this congregation was planted, in, what, nearly two years ago now in October. Um, and so, um, so yeah. God in his providence is we, uh, we were actually meant to leave the end of June, and so uh, obviously with coronavirus and things like that, our, our timeline has changed and we'll be leaving uh, in 10 days. But uh, so whenever we were uh, thinking through a summer series and the parables, um, we've landed here. And in many ways, uh, this is a, uh, a great kind of going away sermon because it really does kind of focus in on some of the things that I would love to uh, just remind us of. Uh, before we go, and uh, and and we have this parable of the two uh, builders. It's a it's a familiar kind of parable if you've kind of been around church uh, at all. Um, if uh, anybody know the song, were you singing the song when she was kind of um, reading the text? You know, you can do the the kind of actions that go along with it and things like that. Um, it's a familiar kind of song, and it's one of those parables because it's kind of vivid uh, and it's easy to understand that we can become very familiar with it, maybe even over familiar with it. And we kind of think of it as like a children's story or something like that. And yet when we really dig down into what Jesus is uh, getting after and bringing us uh, to a point of consideration with, uh, it really is impactful and striking. And it really is um, one of the things that I would love to leave Village uh, with, with these words, this, this, this teaching of Jesus ringing um, in your ears and a challenge for us uh, as we leave as well. Um, here we have this idea of these two builders, and one is building with a foundation, and one is building without a foundation. And so when we think of building a house, um, maybe you've built a house, or some of you are, would love to build a house someday. When we think, oh yeah, I'm building a house, uh, we, we aren't actually normally building a house. Um, what we, we mean by that is I'm paying someone to build me a house. 
And uh, it's, it's, you know, we don't sweat any in that, um, unless maybe you're sweating that the check clears your, your bank account or something like that. But it, it's, you know, we pay someone, they build you a house, and, and we just get the fun part of designing it and, and all like that. But here in the Middle East during this time, um, you literally had to build your house if you wanted a house. Um, and there were ways that you could do that depending on um, where you lived. And so in this kind of climate, in this kind of time, typically you would build a house during the summer. Um, the, if, it, if it did rain, those rains would come in the wintertime. If you lived on, on the ridge of where Jerusalem and Hebron and, and some of these places were, sometimes it can get snow in the winter. And so you would build your house during the summer. Um, but the, the problem with building a house during the summer is the soil in this, in this region has a very high clay content. And so if you know anything about clay, when it sits out in the baking sun, it gets very, very hard. Um, Leviticus actually talks about the soil uh, in this area, and it talks about it being like bronze. Um, so imagine trying to dig up uh, dirt that is as hard as metal. It's hard as bronze. Um, it takes a lot of effort. It's hard um, um, to, to be able to do that. And so it'd be very easy to think, you know what, this ground is pretty hard already. I mean, it's like bronze. And so let's just build our house here. We can build it on, on the soil and, uh, you know, one-story one kind of dwelling, a simple dwelling kind of place that's there. Um, and, and kind of take this shortcut. And yet we see this uh, ends in kind of calamity because instead of digging and doing the hard work of digging down to the bedrock, digging down to where there's a foundation, um, uh, that, that won't be swept away because clay in the sun is very hard, but clay, when it gets wet, turns to like chocolate pudding. And so now you're building your house on, on chocolate pudding. It gets washed away. Your house buckles and the ruin of the house is great um, that we see here. All of your work, all of your effort is all gone um, in one storm. And Jesus uses this kind of imagery to to get us to consider um, what it is we're actually building upon. Are we building upon a rock? Are we building upon a foundation um, that won't be swept away when the rains come, that won't be swept away when torrential rain um, actually arrives? Or will we do the hard work of actually um, digging down through the hard soil? This is the, the uh, imagery that Jesus is getting at. Um, in, in a lot of Jesus' parables, um, if you remember, if you were here during the, our, our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus comes and he arrives and he says, I've not come to abolish the law or the Old Testament, what we refer to as the Old Testament. I've not come to do away with that. It's not like the, the law is obsolete and, and we, we, we can just uh, bend that. He says, no, I've actually come to fulfill the law um, and, and actually build upon that then. And so um, a lot of Jesus' parables are actually rooted in the Old Testament. So to really, I think, get the impact of some of this, I want us to look at that together. So if you have a Bible, um, uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 14. Um, and we're going to look at what essentially is the mirror image of this parable in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. Um, this is hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, and the prophet Isaiah um, uh, as we pay attention, just listen and see if you can't see uh, essentially mirror imagery that's happening here. So this is the prophet Isaiah, and he's writing to Israel, the people of God. And he, he says this, he says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. So he's aiming his, his, uh, 
critique to the leadership, the religious leaders who were leading in Jerusalem. And he quotes kind of their attitude. He says, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste or will not be shaken. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. Jesus is using this prophetic rhetorical template that the prophets used in the Old Testament. And now he's doing the same sort of thing. And notice, notice the similarities that are happening here. They both start off with a call to hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says, why do you call me teacher if, if, you don't, if, if all you do is hear my teaching? Here it is again, hear the word of the Lord. We have made a covenant with death. Now what's going on here? The leadership in Israel had formed essentially like a NATO type agreement with Egypt. There was a mutual defense kind of uh, agreement uh, with the Egyptians because Assyria was the main threat at the time. And so they made this pact um, with, with Egypt. And the Egyptian army, you know, would come and they would save them. And Isaiah was sure that their agreement with Egypt was worthless, that it would fail. And the prophet delivers this stinging rebuke to the leadership team in Jerusalem in the form of this parable. This, you have made a covenant with death, is a reference to you've made a covenant with Egypt, uh, whose gods were gods of death and oversaw death, and a lot of their worship was around those sorts of things. And he comes with this parable showcasing these two buildings. Um, Essentially, you've built a refuge, you've built a shelter, and yet it is doomed to fail. It's not going to protect you when the the scourge, the whip, this hailstorm of Assyria comes. The building that you are building as a refuge to protect yourself is going to fail. It's going to be worthless. But, he says, not all is lost. The future is hopeful. God has not abandoned his people, and one day he will lay a foundation in Zion or in Jerusalem, a tested, precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And the building tools for this new building to be constructed on the foundation will be justice, the plumb line will be righteousness. This is uh, his, his promise. And so what happens to this dramatic parable that Isaiah tells? Well, 600 years later then, fast forward to really this kind of uh, time of, there's a Qumran community, a Jewish community. They uh, are out in the Jordan Valley. And in reflecting on Isaiah's parable, um, and in a document that they titled The Rule of Community, Um, Their kind of rule of how they would live as a community, the scribes wrote this, quoting from that. It says, in the council of the community, there shall be 12 men and three uh, three priests, perfectly versed in all that is revealed in the law, whose works shall be truth, righteousness, justice, loving kindness, and humility. When these are in Israel, it shall be that tried wall, that precious cornerstone, whose foundation shall neither rock nor sway in their place. Now, that sounds good, right? 
it sounds like they're trying to actually enact uh, what, what Isaiah said. Okay, justice, uh, humility, righteousness, that's what we want you know, to be you know, known in our community. And yet, the, the foundation, the cornerstone was this council of 12 men, these three priests. That was their goal, is to have this council who knew the law, had an impeccable record of good works, and then could kind of hold the people to, uh, to, to account in that. In Jerusalem, however, there's a different view. Um, the Mishnah, which is a Jewish kind of uh, uh, writing as well, historical piece, says this. It says, After the ark was taken away, a stone remained there from the time of the early prophets, and it was called the Sheteah, which literally means the foundation. It was higher than the ground by three finger breadths, and on this, uh, they would place the fire pan. So let me just explain what, what all that means. Um, this text really discusses this ritual on the Day of Atonement. Um, the high priest in the temple of Jerusalem, in the middle of this 12-hour liturgy, um, on this solemn day, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. And he would carry this large pan um, with burning charcoal, and it was covered in incense to offer this incense offering. And in the center of the Holy of Holies, there was a stone slightly elevated from the rest of the floor, and on that stone, he would place this fire pan. And that stone was called the foundation. And so for the Jews of the Second Temple, in the center of the Holy Holies with its raised stone was the most sacred spot in the world. And that stone that was in Zion at the center of the temple complex was referred to as the foundation. The average Jew, kind of loyal to the temple in that time of Jesus, surely knew that the authorities had named a raised stone in the center of the Holy of Holies called the foundation. And it was natural then to assume that the complex of buildings around it with all of its sacrificial systems and rituals was understood to be built on the foundation promised by Isaiah. And so this is the world then that Jesus comes um, into. And he offers a third understanding uh, of the way that Isaiah's promise is going to be fulfilled. And he says, actually, the foundation isn't a council of men and priests. It's not an, a literal stone in the temple, but the foundation that we are to build our life upon is, Jesus says, to hear and do my words. That, Jesus says, he was the foundation that Isaiah promised. He was the sheteah. He was the foundation stone, the cornerstone. Jesus says, if you'll build on me, on my works, you will not be shaken. This is the context from which all of this comes. Notice the comparisons between Isaiah and Jesus' parables. Each has two houses or two structures that are being built. This water or storm or hail is a symbol that appears in both of them. The foundation is a critical um, topic in both of these parables. In both, people are called to hear and respond to the word of God. Clearly, Jesus is borrowing and building elements from Isaiah as he tells these parables. These instructions. And like Isaiah, Jesus knew that a great storm was on its way and that the foundation that they were relying on wasn't enough. It would be destroyed. Now, in Jesus' immediate context, that's not the Assyrians, it's Rome. Um, And there were kind of nationalist zealots that thought they could defeat Rome 
um, and that they could establish kind of, you know, the temple as, as this foundation to be, which, which is being built. And as we know from history, that's not true. Rome conquers, occupies, the temple's eventually destroyed, all of these things. Jesus knows that this is going to fail. But he's speaking even beyond that. He's speaking in a much uh, broader way about what the kingdom of God is like. We've entitled this series of parables called Kingdom Culture. What the kingdom of God is like and what those of us who are part of the kingdom should be like as we live in it. Jesus comes with a whole different vision of what the temple is going to be. No longer this building in Jerusalem with this, all this sacrificial system. He says there's a new temple being built. He, as the lamb that was slain, would be the final sacrifice. No more need for all the bloodshed of animals. Jesus' blood would be enough. And him and his teachings would be the new cornerstone on which this new temple, where God's presence would dwell, would be built. And then throughout the New Testament, there's this witness to the astounding fact that a person, Jesus, had replaced a building, that his works, his death and resurrection had replaced the sacrificial system that was there. And in faith and baptism, believers in Jesus become a part of this new temple that is being built. We then, as the people of God, those that are followers of Jesus, are the new dwelling place of, of God himself, his Holy Spirit indwelling in us. But it's Jesus is the foundation of which the church is built, which we as his people are building our life upon. Writing at the time in which the temple in Jerusalem was still intact and functioning, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? It's not in the holy of holies anymore. This wasn't a new idea. Paul is enlarging on what Jesus has already taught in the parable in Luke that we've looked at today. Um, but it's interesting how Jesus starts off this parable. Why do you call me Lord, and yet you don't do what I say? It's interesting where this parable fits in Jesus' teaching throughout this, this section of Luke. This is a, a, a sermon, a series of teaching, teachings that Jesus gives called the Sermon on the Plain. This is also, this parable is also found at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And these, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain are very similar. They have overlapping kind of, they're essentially the uh, same sermon with a few differences in between. But they're Jesus' core teachings. And he ends both of them with this parable. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you listen, but not actually put into action, not actually practice the way of Jesus? And he says, that kind of person who only hears, but doesn't actually do or practice the way of Jesus, their life is built on something else. Their life will be washed away when the storm comes. It won't actually prove to have been built on Something that will last, Jesus himself, his work, and his teachings. This isn't unique to, to the people of Israel, though, is it? This is the human condition. This is our condition. This is the thing that we struggle with as well. And I'm not talking about just, you know, kind of secular people who have rejected Jesus' teachings. Jesus, in these sermons, is describing the kingdom of God and people who would say they're associated with it, whether they are or, or aren't legitimately. 
In many ways, this is Christian culture um, in the West and, and Northern Ireland, right? We can go about doing all of our kind of religious duties, being seen to be in church, being seen to, to serve, being seen to do all of these things. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, it's actually, or it follows right before this, where people come and they say, but Lord, Lord, we, we cast out demons in your name. We, 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 we served in your name. We did all of these religious duties in your name. And Jesus' response to them is, I, don't, I never knew you. And so it's very easy to kind of be going through religious kind of rituals and yet not actually putting the, the teachings of Jesus into practice in our life. Not actually being a true follower of Christ. Being, um, building a, a, what looks to be a temple uh, uh, with all of its religious trappings and yet not actually the foundation. Not actually being a part of what uh, Jesus calls us to be. Um, let's go again to the Old Testament. Um, Ezekiel 33, we're going to look at, again, I think Jesus has pulled a couple different threads into his teachings in the New Testament, but if we go to Ezekiel 33, uh, 29, and um, again, just to show us how um, we are not uh, new, <laughs> that the human condition has, has uh, always been one that is one to do our own way and, and, and uh, stray from the Lord. This is uh, the prophet Ezekiel, and, and listen to his words. Then they will know that I am the Lord. When I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations that they have committed. As for you, son of man, so he's now speaking to the prophet, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. Right? So this, he's like, hey, uh, Ezekiel, you're like a pastor. And um, here's what the deal is. Everybody loves your sermons. They're like, man, you got to come and hear this pastor. You got to come and hear his sermons. This is great. It's what every, ser- what every pastor wants. Yes, people love my teaching. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say. You're like, well, great. Sounds like a a dream job. A pastor with a big crowd, a prophet getting to to speak the words of the Lord to to a bunch of people, and they're excited. They're they're actually telling their their brothers and their friends, hey, you got to come and hear this. But, or always a but, they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are like to them, like one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. It's like your, he's like, your, your voice, your teaching is like this beautiful love song played on a well instrument with a beautiful voice that people want to hear. It's this real pop song. Everybody's singing it. Everybody's wanting to come and hear it. And yet they leave and nothing changes. They don't actually do what you've instructed them to do. They don't actually, uh, they hear the word of the Lord, but they don't actually put it into any kind of action. And then he says, when this comes, speaking of that day of desolation, he says, when this comes, 
and it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. There will be a time, he says, when they will look back with regret after all has been lost and know that you are actually speaking the truth, but they failed to put it into practice. Notice, again, the themes that come through. To hear the word, but not just hear it, to actually put it into practice. And not doing that actually leads to desolation. Ezekiel's words of warning were apparently offered in love, but all the people heard was a love song with a beautiful voice. They listened to his words, but they didn't act on them. And these combination of these two prophetic streams um, seem to be what Jesus is drawing upon now saying, I've come to fulfill the law. I am the cornerstone. If you'll build your life upon me, on my words, not just hearing them, but doing them, putting them into practice. Which is why I think he ends both of his key teachings, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, both um, the same way with this story. I suppose um, for me then, when we think about this uh, kind of being our last Sunday here, one more to go in, in East, when we think about um, really planting the churches that you're trying to build something, right? Um, and we've never tried to build it around me or, or Andrew or any one pastor or any one personality. We've not tried to build it around uh, certain techniques or, or whatever that is. We want to contextualize. We want um, things to be understandable. We want this to be a place where people can come with all of their doubts, with all of their questions, to find community. But all of that being built around Jesus, what he has done, the person, the work, and the teachings of Christ. And all else is up for grabs. We're not building a church built on tradition. And we need to remember that because this church here in South is less than two years old, but I bet there's already things that you think, hey, that's the way we do things here. Or we don't do things that way. And before you know, we start building our own traditions. We have to hold all of these things loosely. The only thing we hold fast to is Christ and his teachings. Just to a few moments of and just thinking about applying this to us. The foundation that we build our life upon both as individuals, but collectively as the new temple, is the person, the words, the work of Jesus himself. This is why Jesus is half-brother James. Um, in James chapter 1, um, he, he says, Do not be a hearer of the word only, but be a doer. He says, if you, all you do is hear the word, you're like someone who looks in the mirror in the morning um, as we all do, it's like looking in the mirror, kind of realizing, okay, I need to do my hair, I need to brush my teeth, I need to, you know, do whatever to my face I need to do. And then we go away from the mirror, but completely, we immediately forget what we look like. We just immediately, it was this temporary kind of thing, we realized there were some things that were there, and then we just completely forgot about them again. He says, don't be just a hearer of the word, but be a doer. Um, in Philippians chapter 4, um, Paul talks uh, about the benefits of, of this um, as well. In Philippians 4, uh, 19. 
Um, Paul says this uh, to, to the church. Um, sorry, Philippians 4, 9, not 19. By technology, I've got big sausage fingers, and so trying to actually click on one thing, not, that's Ephesians 4, Philippians 4, 9. Here we go. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Okay, so this is, uh, someone referred to this already. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And so he says, what you've learned and received and heard, seen me, practice these things. Put them into practice. You do them too. Paul is there. He's mentoring them. He's teaching them. He's leading by example. And he says, now it's time for you not just to hear these things, not just to be impressed by my teaching, not just to go, oh, this is a great group of people and community to be a part of, but actually to put them into practice. And he says, when we do that, then the God of peace will be with you. How do we experience God's peace and his presence in our life? It's by actually putting it into practice. It's by practicing the way of Jesus. It's abiding with him. It's communing with him. And when we do that, we have his peace and his presence with us. That's true um, for those of you that have walked with Jesus. I'm sure you would say that's true. That's true of me. The days that I feel more anxious, more um, unsettled, more unsure, especially when we're trying to move internationally, all of these sorts of things are the days that I probably am just trying to do it on my own. I don't have the peace and presence of God with me in those moments. I'm not really practicing the way of Jesus, leaning in to this. But this is hard work. It's difficult. It's like trying to dig up earth in clay that's as hard as bronze. So in Jesus' parable, digging down to the foundation is like putting into practice the teachings of Jesus. But it's not easy. It takes effort. James, in his, uh, when he's talking about being a, a, a doer of the word and not just a hearer, uses the word to persevere. We're to persevere. And perseverance means automatically that it's not hard, that it's, e- that it's not easy, that it's difficult. That we have to continue, that we have to persevere through. Now this raises questions. Like reading the book of James raises questions. Because you start to go, okay, does this mean though then that I have to somehow work out, I have to somehow work for my salvation? That if I, if I don't do these things then that somehow I'm not a Christian does that mean then the answer is I do all these things to, so I can be a Christian? The answer to that is, well, depending on how you're framing the question, yes and no. Um, let's go to 2 Peter 2. I think this is a good, clear place for us to answer the question. There's lots of places we could go in the scriptures, almost every one of Paul's letters, but, but this is a great place um, to, to begin. 2 Peter, uh, he says this. Uh, 1-3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so the order of of this argument is really important. And he starts off with, it's God in his mercy that has caused us to be born again. It isn't us and our effort. It's, it's, It's by God's sheer grace. If there was a way for us to be good enough to work our way into the kingdom of God, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come and be a sacrifice for our sins. It makes a mockery of the cross. And so it's not by our works that we enter in through the kingdom of God. It's by his mercy. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's by God's power that we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay? He goes on. In this you rejoice, though, for now, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials, we could say various storms, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor to the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's it's these storms, these trials that come that test the genuineness of our faith. And what reveals the genuineness of our faith that has been granted to us by grace is that we actually put it into practice. He says, though you have not seen him, that's Jesus, you love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you see how the gospel leads us into that? That's his first letter. Now go to 2 Peter Peter 1. That was his first. Now he's, he's following up again. And listen to how he reiterates these things again. He says, His, that's God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature. So we get to partake in the very nature of God, His Spirit in us, um, producing the fruit of the Spirit in our life, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason then, he's following up that first letter. He's reminded them again. For this reason, make every effort, dig in that hard soil, to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection. This includes other people, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're, we're, we're brought into the kingdom of God by faith, through grace of Jesus and his death and his work on our behalf, then in that we make every effort to grow in our faith, to confirm our calling, as it were. He lists a list here that's not a full list. It's, it's basically describing, again, the fruit of the Spirit in our life that's growing and maturing and increasing. He says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. 
having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. Your house doesn't fall because you've built it on the practices of following Jesus' words, his instructions that leads us into a life of flourishing. For in this way, you will be richly provided for for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not our works, it's not our obedience to Christ that brings us into the kingdom of God. It's, it's those things that actually reveal to us that we've responded to his grace. We've responded to his call in our life. In legitimate ways, we're confirming our calling. Jesus' brother James would put it this way. A faith without works is dead. It's not a real faith. It's not legitimate faith. Because if it's real faith, it produces works in our life. It produces a desire for us to follow Jesus and obey and to put his teachings into practice in our life. Now, that doesn't mean that we're perfect. That doesn't mean that we're sinless. It hopefully means that we do sin less as we grow and mature in Christ. But in Hebrews, which you'll study in, in, in this autumn, um, there's a chapter in there kind of referred to as the Great Hall of Faith. And it, it's, it, it, it talks about all these great men and women of the faith and, and how they're commended for their faith in Christ. And yet, when you actually look at the, the characters that are listed there, um, it's adulterers, it's murderers, it's prostitutes. It's like people who have screwed up big time in their life. Not perfect people. But people who are responding to God's grace in legitimate ways, in faith and hope and repentance. And for them then, when the final storm comes, they're commended for their faith into the kingdom of God. And so what is this kind of storm well, it's, again, as Jesus' teachings are, they're multi-layered. At one level, for those of us that are in Christ, um, it, it, we can think of that as these trials that come. They kind of shake our faith. Will we continue to follow Jesus? Will we not? Um, it could be all sorts of various trials in our life. Um, and that's true. But this ultimately what Jesus is teaching about is this kind of storms are often referred to in, in the Scripture in reference to kind of final judgment. Are we legitimately a part of the body of Christ? Are we a part of God's kingdom? And if so, then the, the culture of our life will display that. It's not going to be a council of priests and elders of the Qumran community. It's not going to be an actual stone in a temple somewhere. It'll be those who have built their lives on Jesus and not just as individuals, but our lives knit together. Paul talks about us being living stones, being built together to form the temple of God, the church, the universal church. That's what we get to be a part of. If you remember in, in Luke chapter 8, if you keep reading in this passage, Jesus is teaching. It's a big crowded, packed out house. And uh, someone comes to Jesus and says, hey, your brothers and your mother are here. Um, wanting him to kind of like, hey, can you just stop what you're doing and come out and see your family? And Jesus' response to those is, my family isn't, isn't just biological family. 
He says, my true family are those who hear and do my word. Hear and do my word. My, my hope, uh, someone used the word legacy. I, I haven't really thought about a legacy of mine. I, I don't really, wouldn't call it that way. But it, for whatever work we've done here over the last decade with Village, um, I hope that this is it. We'll leave, we'll be gone. But my hope is that we've not built a village or any of that around any legacy of one human person um, but the foundation that we've built on is Jesus and his word and his teaching. There will be storms and trials that come, for sure. In your life individually, no doubt if our church lasts long enough, probably even as a, as a whole. But the thing that will ensure that these little dudes get to still be a part of village when they're your age, kids, grandkids, whatever it is, that our church will last will be this. A church that's built on Jesus alone is putting into practice the way, of, the, the way of Jesus, imperfectly, failing at times, offering each other grace and encouraging one another back onto the path to live our lives in light of the gospel, in line with the gospel. That's my hope and prayer um, for all of us. It has been. It will continue to be because it's the only thing that is worth building upon. It's the only thing um, that will last. Long after I'm gone, other elders and pastors, leaders um, are gone. Um, people move. People die <laughs> suddenly. Um, so Nick Wright, who was uh, one of our elders here, uh, uh, was teaching last week, I believe, um, found out yesterday his dad was out for a cycle and dropped dead of a massive heart attack. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow at all. Sickness comes. Tragedy comes. Storms come. And in a young church like ours, um, we can forget that. We can forget, we can lose sight, we can kind of think that we're invincible in many ways. Um, But we're reminded daily. I'm sure there was plenty of young people uh, in Beirut this last week and never saw uh, an explosion of that matter coming. None of us are guaranteed anything. And this is why Jesus' teachings are so imperative. We don't know when the storm will come. It might be different for all of us. And so now is the time. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and not actually put that into practice? So my prayer for us is that we would gaze at the beauty of Jesus, his grace, his mercy, all that he has done for us, his sacrifice, him taking all of the wrath of God upon himself to spare us from that, and that we would respond out of gratitude, out of, out of, um, out of just wonderment of, of what Jesus has done for us. And follow his ways and put those into practice. And here's the beauty of that. That way, um, we're often told by our society and culture, is, um, is not a way that leads to happiness. 
you need to do you, you need to, to live you know, your best life, however you kind of uh, carve out that path. And yet, as we saw from Jesus' teachings in this, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, that's the road most people take. It's a broad path, but it's a path that eventually leads to demise and destruction. It's, it's, the, it's the narrow path. It's the narrow gate of building our life on Jesus as a foundation that actually leads to flourishing, not just in the next life, but in this one as well. My prayer this morning is that we would continue to believe that. And in those moments where all of us doubt that, because we do, all of us, myself included, that we're a part of a community, that we're a part of a family here of people that will remind us of that, that will graciously draw us back into um, life in the beauty of the kingdom of God. We pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Forgive us when we lose sight of that, when we just become busy building our lives uh, on, our, on our own kind of foundations. We do it not, not intentionally at times, and we just kind of drift. And so, Father, I pray that as we call you, Lord, that our lives would actually match that declaration. Father, I pray for, uh, for Village that this would be a place where <coughs> or seekers and doubters and cynics uh, can come and they can find rest, that they can find a community that will love them, um, that will point them to Jesus and the grace and mercy that he, that he offers freely, that this would be a place that they would find life and life to the full, life overflowing, not just in the next life, but now, here. And so, Father, may we follow this way of love. May we follow this way of grace and mercy. We thank you uh, that we have been recipients of that. Father, may we then be gracious, loving, kind, merciful people as we practice the way of Jesus, inviting others into the kingdom of God. May that be the culture of, 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 of this church. May that be any kind of legacy that is built, Father, may be built on the foundation of Jesus and his teaching alone. We ask this in your name. Amen.